Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Today we're going to be talking to the author of Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines. He is the author of several books, from the time he can remember all the way back to his first day of kindergarten. Jonathan Mooney had an adverse relationship with school. Instead of learning to add and subtract, Jonathan sat at his desk, distracted by his bouncing foot, drumming fingers, while kids were popcorn reading, an activity that left Jonathan riddled with anxiety. He was hiding in the bathroom or hanging out with the janitor. By third grade, he was coined one of those kids. In fourth grade, he was diagnosed with dyslexia. And in fifth grade, attention deficit disorder. By sixth grade, he had dropped out of school altogether. His challenges in education and the resulting circumstances these hardships placed him in left Jonathan feeling less than, depressed, suicidal by age 12. Instead of being a dropout or inmate like many adults in his life had predicted, Jonathan became a college graduate from Brown University with an honors degree in English literature an author and an advocate for others who don't fit into society's mold of normal. Today, we have Jonathan Mooney with us to share some insights into his education journey and his career and his life path. Welcome, Jonathan. Oh, thanks so much for uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. So in Normal Sucks, you talk a lot about how as a society, we essentially make up what is normal and abnormal, Things that are different than what we are used to are normally viewed as abnormal. Dyslexia is a learning difference that can present itself in different ways that translate across reading, spelling, math problems. How would you explain how your dyslexia exhibited itself for you? Well, you're right to to first name that we have a a particular notion of the normal brain, of the normal uh, learner, of the normal body. Uh, and if you deviate from that uh, particular uh, statistical abstraction, because the norm, by definition, is a uh, aggregation, a statistical average of uh, the differences that constitute human experience, uh, and if you dif- differ from that norm, then you get the message that you're not different, but the message that you are deficient. And so that's a, a message I got. You know, I was the the square peg that didn't fit the round hole of school. Um, I struggled, as you uh, noted in your introduction, with uh, uh, reading uh, at a very early age, uh, with writing uh, from a handwriting grammar perspective, uh, and uh, with uh, spelling. Um, and that's just on the dyslexic side of things. <laughs> there were other mm. uh, challenges uh, on the uh, attention side of things mm-hmm. as well. But but the reality is what I struggled with most was not um, those specific uh, neurobiologically-based limitations. And they are neurobiologically-based limitations. They're not a lazy kid or a dumb kid. Uh, it is a different brain, and we've seen uh, images of that different brain over the last 25 years through fMRIs, etc., so what I struggled with most was not the specific academic limitations. Those were very real challenges. What I struggled with was the way that I was made to feel stupid and less than because mm-hmm. I did not have the so-called normal brain. Mm-hmm. So 
In your book, you share the varying views on differences and not being deficiencies, and you sort of teed that up a bit ago, um, but rather strengths. Can you summarize for our listeners what you've witnessed about the gifts and talents of students who have differences? Well, we know more more than ever um, that young people with uh, atypical brains and bodies uh, are valuable to the world, uh, not despite their differences, but because of them. And that's a really important uh, logistical reframe, Mm -hmm. because for most of uh, the time, people talk about, you know, folks like me being successful despite their dyslexia, Mm -hmm. which implies that, you know, dyslexia is a deficiency that one should overcome. And what we know more than ever um, in the uh, neurodiversity research field is that there are strengths and talents that come hand in hand with the limitations uh, because of the limitations. You know, there's a cool research study that shows that folks with atypical attention spans are better problem solvers than the general population. Uh, There's a study of EMTs, emergency medical professionals, firemen and women with ADD, and the study shows that they're actually better better at their job than so-called normal EMTs. And that makes intuitive sense because if your house is on fire, you probably want the dude to have ADD. <laughs> you know, like you, you don't don't pay attention. Come get my cat. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also know that fifty um, percent, and this is a staggering statistic, fifty percent of small businesses in America uh, were founded by or run by currently somebody with a language-based learning difference. So entrepreneurship goes hand in hand with this. And we know as it pertains to folks on the anxiety and depression, uh, uh, mental uh, health and and well-being continuum, that there is creativity that is intrinsically linked to those uh, atypical states of being. Mm -hmm. So the research literature has really profoundly changed our understanding. Uh, These aren't deficiencies. They have limitations. They're differences. And not only do they have limitations, but they have strengths and talents that come not despite the limitation, but because of them. That's a really critical and interesting distinction. Just that, as you said, that slight reframing. And going back to, you mentioned a percentage. You said, I think I heard you say 50 or 60 percent of the company's founders. What was that percentage again? Depends on uh, how you count, but if you're including uh, a continuum of language-based learning differences and uh, attentional differences, uh, about about 50% okay. of small businesses in America are run by or founded by somebody with a neurological difference. Yeah, very interesting. You talk about a few different people who had a positive impact on your life, your mom, Mr. P, Father Young. Why do you think it's so important for children with learning differences to have someone advocating for them? And how did having these individuals that you mentioned advocating for you impact your outcome? It's important for all children, um, uh, learning difference aside. Um, You know, we know more than ever the power of a meaningful adult uh, in the life of a child. You know, mm-hmm. There's a research study from the University of Chicago that tracks the uh, 
longitudinal life outcomes of a group of highly vulnerable young people, vulnerable for reasons of, of, of race, systemic racism, of class, of learning status. Uh, and the research study shows unequivocally the ones that uh, beat the odds and don't become the statistics that we know too well, uh, they all have meaningful adults in their life other than their parents. Uh, and that's a really amazing finding. And, and more often than not, those reading f- meaningful adults are educators, are teachers, um, broadly defined, you know, classroom teachers, paraprofessionals, the janitor that says hello to the kid in the hallway, the bus driver that builds a relationship every morning, the food service professional who connects with kids uh, every day. Uh, those people are, are the meaningful adults among many others. And so we know that that connection and relationship is, is so uh, important. And so I had uh, many of those, as you rightfully mentioned, who put me on a different path. But not only did I have meaningful adults who built a relationship with me and connected with me and cared for me as a human being, I had uh, educators specifically who challenged the deficit model surrounding me. You know, if you're a kid who struggles in school uh, broadly, uh, but then more specifically if you struggle for reasons of learning status, uh, it's a deficit conversation that surrounds you. You know, you hear all Mm -hmm. about what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. You don't hear a lot about what's right with you. And the teachers who made the biggest difference in my life flipped that script and were relentlessly committed to the idea that every single student has something right with them and not only committed to the idea that they have something right with them, but committed to the educational practice of building their education around not just remediating their weaknesses, but scaling their strengths. Mm -hmm. So after someone would read uh, your account of your childhood, it's apparent that you faced adverse childhood experiences. In your book, you also talk about your friend Jake, who also experienced adverse childhood experiences. Trauma-informed practices are becoming uh, more and more important and prevalent in today's education conversations. How were you able to overcome the trauma of the events in your childhood uh, and also deal with other challenges at school? You're right to to name um, my journey, um, the journey of my 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 good friend Jake uh, within the framework of 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 trauma uh, the impact it has on human beings sense of self the impact it has on their uh, neurology um, on their physical well-being um, and a path forward to thinking differently about how we engage young folks who have historically not by all but by some been called the problem you know, put the problem in the kid. The kid is a at-risk kid. The kid is a special ed kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the reality is the problem's not in the kid, mm-hmm. but often the way the kid has been treated mm-hmm. um, outside of school, in uh, unjust social systems, uh, and sometimes, you know, to be real, in school. You know, I do think of what I experienced as a form of learning trauma. You know, it's not okay to be the kid hiding in the bathroom with the janitor. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not cool. It's not okay to be the kid who gets the message that they're stupid, crazy, and lazy, a message that uh, I got, my friend Jake got, and so many other people do get. And that is a form of of trauma that requires us to not think about how we fix the kid, but how do we help them heal and transform the environment 
around them. So I'm on a, a mission to help us elevate uh, the learning experience for, for, for some kids, not all, but for some, uh, and see it through the lens of you know, either trauma or, or empowerment. And so how do we, um, as educators, build on the uh, framework of adverse childhood events, build on the emerging practice of, of trauma-informed care and education? How do we integrate within those best practices uh, an emphasis on learning, learning identity, and school experience? And how do we integrate into our larger systemic conversations around structural racism, classism, how do we integrate that structural ableism? Because so many people with atypical brains and bodies, they get the message that they are less than as humans because of their ability status. And mm-hmm. that leads to folks um, losing hope for themselves. You know, I wrote an essay in the New York Times about a month ago called At Risk in a Culture of Normal. It's about my experiences of self-harm. It's about the statistical fact that folks with atypical brains and bodies are at a greater risk of self-harm for themselves. They're at a greater risk of bullying than the general population. They're at a greater risk of being marginalized and isolated. And and that's not a tragedy, you know, that's a crime. Mm -hmm. And we have to start talking about this through the lens of social justice, of equity, start talking about it through the lens of systemic ableism that privileges some brains and bodies over others. Mm, Yeah, well said. So you ended up at Brown University uh, where there are no traditional core requirements. Education is rather based on the individual student. How do you think this model promotes success and how do you think that this could be mirrored in the K through 12 public education system? So I had a very winding road to Brown, just to sort of fill in the the, the gaps for your listeners. Um, you rightfully noted that I left school for a time in, in sixth grade. Um, I really sort of survived education in a secondary context uh, because I uh, was an athlete, and, and, and I'm really transparent about that. That kind of kept me going. Uh, it kept me engaged, alive. It kept me having some vision of a positive future. Uh, That's a really important point because uh, for many young folks who struggle in school, the first thing to get pulled from them (laughs) is the thing that they like. Mm -hmm. You know, there Mm -hmm. are minimum GPA requirements for athletic participation. And then when the kid falls under that minimum GPA requirement, they often leave school. That's not just my opinion. There's statistical facts around that. Mm -hmm. Same goes with the drama club and the engineering club. And not only does that happen at a microchasm level where a kid struggles, loses the thing that they're passionate about, but it happens at a systemic level. You know, the failing school, the quote unquote, uh, under no child left behind, the first thing that got pulled from that school was all the good stuff, you know, to double down on traditional academic instruction. So I think it's really important for us to hold that idea of islands of competency, um, which is a research term for vulnerable young people, and nurturing those islands of competency. And so that was brown for me, you know, it was a place um, that you're right to note had no core requirements. It was a place where uh, interest um, and passion drove your education. Now, obviously, it's a different context. It's a private institution of higher education, Mm -hmm. but there's lessons to be learned, both in my own journey to Brown and in my experience at Brown, that when we focus on experiential learning, 
when we focus on project-based learning, when we focus on nurturing uh, and validating uh, individual interest and talent, young folks who historically are challenged do better. You know, the research is unequivocal about project-based learning, PBL learning, that a whole continuum of learners, from the most vulnerable to the most accelerated, benefit from that interest-based real-world context. So that's a, a lesson uh, for all of us as parents, you know, hey, what do I do for my kid? Well, we need to invest in what is right. Uh, as educators, I know we can't change the system, but we can build that within the day-to-day experience uh, in small and big ways. But then ultimately, for all of us who care about the future of education, care about kids, how do we take real the idea that student engagement is better when their interests, their talents, their strengths are validated and when we do experiential opposed to rote-based learning. Okay. And so at the end of your book, you cite a paragraph from the book, uh, The Rejected Body, that states people with disabilities have experiences by virtue of their disabilities, which non-disabled people do not have and which are sources of knowledge that is not directly accessible to non-disabled people. How do you believe this thinking should or could be incorporated into public education? It's a beautiful passage, and and I just want to celebrate again and be clear that those aren't my words. Those are the words of Susan Wendell um, from a a, a groundbreaking book called The Rejected Body that um, changed my life, and and anyone interested in this subject should go find it uh, and read it or listen to it in whatever modality is right for them. And what she was articulating is a, is a well-established um, argument um, within epistemology, the, the way that we, we know and learn the world, um, and specifically within social justice movements, uh, feminism, the, the empowerment of historically marginalized groups, etc. And it's the idea of standpoint epistemology, that where we live and, and, and where we uh, engage the world uh, gives us knowledge about it that's different from folks who come at it from a different perspective. Uh, And her argument was that we should be embracing the embodied experience of people with atypical brains and bodies as a valuable source of knowledge. Uh, I can tell you um, that uh, I went on a journey um, uh, for my second book called The Short Bus, where I drove around the United States uh, and I listened to the lived experience of people Uh, with atypical brains and bodies who literally or metaphorically rode the short bus, which is a vehicle that takes some, not all, but some kids to special education in districts around the country. And what I found there was uh, a vibrant community, uh, a community where some core values that we take for granted were challenged. You know, I found a community where interdependence was more valuable than independence. You know, we tend to think that the American dream is to be a lone agent out there doing your thing independently, when the reality is that we are interdependent human beings. I I found a celebration of that. You know, we live in a culture that tells us we'll never age, we should buy all these things to consistently keep uh, our mortality at bay, and subsequently we live in a delusion. Well, the disability rights community acknowledges that delusion, believes we are all temporarily abled bodies, 
and requires us to develop a new way that we think about our value as human beings and frankly requires us to reject some of the rampant consumer culture that tells us we should always be fixing our limitations to become more normal. So those are a set of really radical values that I think we need more than ever. You know, independence has gotten us the uh, consuming culture that we have, and it's brought us on the brink of climate crisis. You know, this notion of constantly buying stuff to fix your deviations from the bell curve has partly led to a youth well-being crisis in America. We know that suicide is one of the uh, second leading of causes of death for young people in this country for the first time in measurement. And a part of that comes from this uh, uh, Instagram culture where we're always looking at the idealized good life opposed to celebrating the life that we live. So I think valuing that knowledge, seeing it as a, a morality that is different and challenging to the mainstream can help us be better human beings. And that also requires us within an educational context to integrate in our conversations of diversity. You know, I'm inspired by many teachers and school districts that are elevating diversity and equity and inclusion as a core principle, and they're using uh, socially relevant uh, content, et cetera, and that's the right thing to do. But we don't do that for atypical brains and bodies. You know, it's still a pathology issue. Well, there's a disability history that we should be talking about. There's systemic ableism that we should be teaching in schools. And there's differentiated instruction to meet the different needs of students that benefits not just a kid like me, but ultimately benefits all kids. Mm. So you've made a big impact on students with learning differences, and that's apparent through your accounts of meeting them throughout your writing path and history. You mentioned uh, both of your book titles there, and there's a third title. Can you remind me what the title of your other book is besides Normal Sucks and Short Bus? Yeah, the first first book is a book called Learning Outside the Lines, which will celebrate its 20th anniversary in 2020. So for 20 years, super old. <laughs> for 20 years, though, you've been raising awareness around this, which is fantastic, or perhaps longer even. So what advice would you give to students and parents, educators who might be listening to this episode? We've talked a bit about sort of the education side, but, but to students and parents who may, some of this may resonate with, who, what kind of guidance would you give them or advice? Well, first, saturate uh, anybody who... Uh, had a journey like mine, uh, even if the journey like mine was for very different reasons, with the message that different isn't deficient. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the core existential challenge. You know, when you find yourself on the wrong side of normal, you get the message that you're less than as a human being. And that's an existential wound. You know, you mentioned my my buddy Jake, uh, and this is not his name. Uh, uh, It's a name I'm using uh, uh, for his own privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I used to have a joke that we would we would never live to see 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Ha ha, super mm-hmm. funny, right? Well, my friend Jake drank himself to death when he was 33 years old mm-hmm. because of that existential wound that he was less than as a human. So find a way to flip that and celebrate these differences not as inherent deficiencies uh, in any way possible. Uh, rhetorically, uh, practically, in terms of the role models that we put out there for kids, uh, and in every single day and every interaction. Now, the other thing we have to do, though, is not just celebrate these things as differences, not deficiencies. We have to fight for kids' rights to learn differently. 
you know, you alluded to my mom briefly, would not be here if it wasn't for her. You know, my mom, quite a character, not a tall woman. You know, on a good day in high heels, she's 4'11". <laughs> she has a very squeaky voice like Minnie Mouse, <laughs> and she curses like a truck driver. <laughs> and my mom uh, fought for me. You know, if you were uh, somebody doing wrong by her kid, you did not want cursing Minnie Mouse in your office, you know, <laughs> but that's where she was. And she fought for my right to learn differently. She fought for my right for services. This is a very important point. Most people don't realize that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act from 1973 has never been fully funded by any administration, Republican mm -hmm. or Democrat. And we need to release resources to cast-strapped districts, many I'm sure in the great state of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. to give the teachers the resources they need to provide the services that are obligated under law. We have to fight for resources. We also have to fight for accommodations, which is a little bit different. Anyone listen here, student, teacher, parent, there are rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act for accommodations, speaks to text, text to speech, alternative modes of assessment, including time extensions on exams and project-based learning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But ultimately, what we should be fighting for together collectively, because we're all in the same boat here. We all have the same common mission. Educators, uh, teachers, uh, paraprofessionals, parents, uh, all of us. We should be fighting for an institution that's universally designed. The idea that we have an obligation to build learning experiences that don't just work for some kids, but work for all kids. Mm -hmm. now, I know that's hard work, but all truly transformative work is hard work. Mm -hmm. True, true statement. Well, honestly, I could ask you so many more questions. Your story and, and your writing has been extremely interesting. I want to thank you for joining us on today's um, podcast episode. I think this is such important awareness. Thank you so much my pleasure and uh, thank you for having me but more importantly thank you um, your colleagues all the educators uh, in the great state of Pennsylvania for doing the work that you do because it matters more than ever and it truly you all who are the front lines of building a more equitable just and inclusive world thank you so much for that Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association this episode is sponsored by LifeTouch and Low V Systems. Make sure to visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's discussion and for past episodes covering a wide range of education topics. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a show. If you find our content valuable, please rate and review or share the show with friends and colleagues. You can find more information about Keystone Education Radio on Twitter, or follow the Pennsylvania School Boards Association on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.